0: Justice looks like to me is, is a child being treated as God's own creation. We're Doug and Cheryl Kite, longtime members of Chapel Street, and a year ago we made a decision to begin serving in the ministry Safe Families for Children. This is an organization that, that comes alongside families in distress and offers to host children while the parents or parent navigates a crisis. Our little boy came from a home with a single mom, several kids. She'd been a victim of domestic violence. He'd seen things. That isn't right. It's not just. It's not the way God intends for a family unit to be. Our family is blessed. We love our children unconditionally. and it would break my heart to think that there's a child out there that does not have that. Sometimes it can get overwhelming to think how can I contribute? God brings you this opportunity to invest in a child you would never meet ever. That child will be so blessed seeing your family seeing God's love through your family. The Ministry of Safe Families is an instrument of God's justice in the world. It gives you as a volunteer an opportunity to treat children as God wants them treated. And God will work in your heart through the process to bring you to the place where you get great joy from it. That's what justice looks like.
1: We thank Doug and Cheryl Kite for sharing uh, part of their story with us through that video and for letting us know about a ministry that's actually new to me to hear about, Safe Families for Children. And we're showing you these little stories week by week. First of all, to be aware of what's going on, what people from our church family are involved with and why. And also so that you can consider how God might um, nudge you to be involved in something like that. So like I mentioned before, we list all of our local ministry partners doing this kind of work on our website. You can just go to ChapelStreet.church/justicepartners. You can find those things. So we hope that you'll consider those things. Well, a number of years ago now, uh, a young couple came to me. I think they were uh, coming for some premarital work, hoping to get married here. So in the process of getting to know them a little bit, I was asking them questions about their, uh, kind of their, their each, each of their individual lives, their relationship together. In particular, I was interested in their spiritual journey. I wanted to know where they stood with relationship to the gospel, to Christ, and to faith. And the young man then told me an interesting story. He said, uh, by the time I was 17, Uh, I figured out the whole religion thing, he said. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, my buddies and I uh, would find the earliest mass we could attend on a Saturday morning, and we would go there and go into the confessional booth and pre-confess all our sins for the weekend. And then we were good. I said, what? And he said it to me again. I said, oh, you mean like a sin credit card? And he said, yeah, exactly. I said, well, you know, that's not the way it works. And he said, I know now. But he said, then as a young man, I thought I had the system all figured out perfectly. And I had to admit that uh, it was kind of a clever system he had devised, uh, but it just wasn't genuine. It wasn't true confession. It wasn't worship that honored a God who was holy. It was rather using God, using that which is holy for one's own selfish and even sinful purposes. And that's a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. We're in a series called Injustice for All. We're searching and studying God's Word uh, to see what God has to say about Justice, what he means by justice. Not what politicians mean, not what our culture means, not what uh, media means, but what God means by justice. Last week we saw that uh, God is a God of justice. It's part of his character. It's not something he does to please someone or to please us. It's part of who God is. We looked at how Jesus is also a representation of God's justice because he represents God himself. He is God himself. And then we looked at the gospel and justice. How the gospel is necessary because we are unjust people. Uh, We have sinned against God and against each other. And God must satisfy his justice through Christ who is our sacrifice. We talked all about that. And today we're looking at justice and worship. Justice and worship. We're going to take a deep dive into some ancient prophecies in the prophet called Isaiah. So we're going to be in two main chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. So let me uh, start to read through Isaiah chapter 1. and We'll stop here and there to point out some things, and then we'll see what God might have to say to us today. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I'm going to pause there and just give a little background. The prophet Isaiah uh, lived in roughly the 7th century B.C., um, 720 or so uh, uh, before Jesus was born. Uh, this was the period of history when Israel was actually a divided kingdom. Uh, there was the northern kingdom which Scripture refers to as Israel at this time. And they had been pretty much destroyed, captured uh, by pagan uh, kingdoms to the north, Assyria and Babylon. And then there was a southern kingdom, which is called Judah, which includes the great city of Jerusalem. Um, And we'll talk more about what's happening there in just a moment. But Isaiah is writing to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah and the people of Jerusalem. Verse 2, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken children i have reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me verse 4 ah sinful nation a people laden with iniquity offspring of evil doers children who deal corruptly they have forsaken the lord they have despised the holy one of israel they are utterly estranged let me pause there again so what is The prophet talking about here. What's going on that the prophet speaks these rather harsh words? Well, as I said, Isaiah's writing in roughly the 7th century B.C. The northern kingdom has suffered under dozens of bad or evil kings, poor leadership, and they had fallen to the Assyrians. But the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, were facing now similar threats from other uh, pagan nations. Uh, There had been evidently a long and slow spiritual erosion in the southern kingdom. There had been rampant disobedience, rampant disregard for God's law, and a widespread abuse of the poor. We know this from what the prophet's going to tell us in a few more verses. Uh, Now the kingdom of Judah is being threatened, just like the north was, by pagan empires to the north and in Egypt to the south. So now evidently the people are afraid and they're beginning to cry out to God to help them in their distress. But God has something else in mind. Verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I simply, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen." Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Now, we're going to dive into three things today from this ancient prophecy. First, that God confronts his people. Secondly, that God confronts worship without justice. And finally, God calls his people to repentance. First, God confronts his people. Years ago, um, I think it was probably the late 60s, early 70s, I was just a a young boy at that time. Uh, My dad was pastoring a small church uh, about 40 miles north of New York City, and a young couple— came to see him, I think they were also asking to be married. Now, they weren't a part of my dad's church at the time, as I recall, but he was willing to at least meet with them and talk to them about a wedding. One of the first questions he asked them was, which was his practice at the time, was, do your parents approve of your marriage? And they both said yes, uh, without hesitation. So he met with them for three or four more times, uh, doing some premarital counseling, some spiritual counseling, and then putting together a wedding ceremony. Then the day of the wedding finally came, And that very morning, my dad got a call from the father of the bride. And he said, I understand you're the pastor that's officiating my daughter's wedding today. My father said, yes, that's right. He said, well, you need to know that my wife and I do not approve of this marriage. In fact, we did not even know this was happening until today. Now, my dad had no idea about this family, what had happened between them. He didn't know what brokenness was in those relationships. He didn't know why they didn't approve. But he did know that this young couple had lied to him blatantly about their relationship. So when the couple arrived at the church, all dressed up, ready for a wedding, he took them back to his office, and he confronted them. His office was right off the sanctuary, like right behind that door. And he confronted them. And they admitted that they had misled him, uh, that that they knew their parents didn't approve, they just wanted to get married. And so he told them that day, the day of their wedding, that he could not and would not conduct their wedding ceremony until that conflict was worked out. And he canceled that wedding that day. Now, he didn't do that because he was mean. He didn't do it because he was judgmental. He did it because he cared about that couple. He cared about their relationship. He cared about the relationship they had with their parents. He cared, and so he confronted them because he wanted them to make it right. That's what God is talking about here. Back to Isaiah 1. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up. They have rebelled against me. Ah, sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. I don't know if you notice as I read through that how many different words the prophet uses to describe the sins of God's people. This is often the case with prophets. They build on one thought on another, and they keep on a theme and they hammer away. But he says, like they've been like children who have rebelled. That brings up one image: the rebellious child, a sinful nation. There's a corporate sense of sin. People laden with iniquity. This means filled with perversity. That word iniquity is a a much stronger word for sin. Children who deal corruptly. They're ethically wicked. They've forsaken the Lord. That means they've turned away, meaning they've ignored the law of God, and they've even turned to pagan idols and superstitions. They've despised the Holy One. That means to provoke to anger, utterly estranged. Now, a couple things I want you to see here. First, God is confronting his people, but these are people who think of themselves as good. These are people who think of themselves as, as God's special people, as His chosen people, but God confronts them nonetheless. Secondly, God confronts their injustice and sin not to punish or destroy, but to heal and restore. God is just. We know that throughout the Bible. God is holy. And in His holiness and justice, He must confront sin. He must. But God's also loving and merciful. And in his love and mercy, he wants to forgive and restore. He's confronting in order to restore. We see this in verse 16 when he continues, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now notice the specific changes God wants to see. Notice the specific things God is confronting. He says, cease to do evil. Okay, that makes sense. But learn to do good. And what does good look like? He says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. So we can assume then, if these are the specific things God mentions, these are the things that were going on at the time that people had drifted far from who God is. They had disregarded God's law. But more than that, he's saying they had disregarded his heart. They disregarded his heart, his care, his mercy for the most vulnerable among them, the fatherless, the widow, the oppressed. They disregarded his heart for justice. So God confronts his people because he wants something Better for them. That leads us to the second point today that God confronts worship without justice. He confronts worship without justice. In May of 2020, okay, so just last year, less than a year ago, May of 2020, Germany's Catholic bishops came out with a public statement. You may have seen this a statement acknowledging that the Catholic Church was complicit in what we call the Holocaust. They acknowledged that the church was largely stood by as the Nazi party came to power and launched the ideology that eventually led to World War II and the extermination of millions of Jews. This picture here is of uh, Adolf Hitler and one of the bishops of the Catholic Church in the late 1930s. Kind of a chilling picture to look at. By failing to confront the evil and injustice, by failing to fight for and protect the most vulnerable among them, they had become complicit. And they're admitting this Some. Eighty-five years after the fact, they had become complicit even while they were offering worship and prayers to God. Now, eventually, we all know that the Nazi ideology led to the imprisonment and even execution of many, many church leaders. And then a resistance movement began to spring up called the Confessing Church, led by Protestant pastors like uh, Martin Niemöller and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In fact, Bonhoeffer eventually was martyred, uh, lost his life in a concentration camp for confronting Uh, the the evils of the Nazi regime. Uh, And then we can look also back at the history of our own country. And if we're honest, we can see that for decades, much of the church in America was complicit in the evil and injustice of the slave trade. This picture is from the 1920s. This is also a chilling picture. A gathering of the Ku Klux Klan under a sign that says, Jesus saves. That many preachers at that time, many church leaders at that time, actually used the Bible to justify the enslavement of human beings. Almost unthinkable to us. Unimaginable. But it happened. All the while claiming to worship the God who has revealed himself to be just. Isaiah 1 again. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have heard enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls, of lambs, of goats. Now, he's talking about worship here. Ancient worship in Israel had to do with burnt offerings and offering the blood of sacrifices, of blood and lambs and goats. But God says there's a problem. There's a problem here because there's a disconnect between your worship and your behavior. And he says, I have had enough. I've had enough. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incenses and abomination, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and in solemn assembly. Now, solemn assembly was a time set aside for special worship, for the people of God that purify themselves before the holiness of Yahweh. He says, I can't take it anymore. Your noons and your appointed feasts, also special times of worship, my soul hates, he says. They become a burden to me. I'm weary bearing them. When you spread out your hands, this is an ancient posture of prayer, especially when they were begging God for his protection for the enemies approaching from the south. He said, you stretch out your hands. I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Three things here we need to see. God wants our worship. We know that throughout Scripture. God wants our worship because he's worthy of our worship, because we were created to worship, because he wants to bless us with his presence. But what is worship? Really, at its essence. Is it the offering of sacrifices and burnt offerings and and observing religious rituals? Is that the sum total of our worship? Is it singing hymns together on Sunday morning in a sanctuary? Is it listening to a sermon from God's Word? Or is it something more? Is it all those but something more? And God's saying it is more. God wants our worship to be reflected in justice. He said say that again. He wants our worship to be refl- reflected in justice. We cannot disconnect how we live and how we see and treat others from how we worship. Jumping to Isaiah 58, much later in the book, we read, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They want my help. They delight to draw near to God. God is saying his people are pretending to worship. That's what he's saying. They're pretending to worship him. They say the right things. They go through the rituals, but their hearts are far from him. Verse 3, why have we fasted, and you see it not? This is The people talking back to God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, God says, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Again, notice the disconnect between what you say in your worship and how you live and how you act. You're abusing and oppressing your workers. Verse 6, isn't this not the fast that I choose? In other words, this is what I want worship to look like to loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So what's God saying here in this ancient prophecy? He's saying that if we worship a God who is just, our worship must reflect that justice. Our lives must reflect justice. That justice. This is why it's so important, by the way, for us as a church, as one local church, to be committed to and to celebrate our, our ministry partners. That's so why we're doing this week by week, to show you these videos, remind you that we are committed to and we're involved with a number of justice ministry partners. Safe Families, that Doug and Cheryl are involved with. Or World Relief, last week we talked about the the ministry that's uh, to refugee families, displaced people groups. Or Royal Family Kids Camp, ministering to foster kids who are among the most forgotten children in the world. Or Naomi's house, we raised a bunch of money over Christmas time to help build another home to uh, rescue women from human trafficking. There's a ministry we support called Rescue a Child. Uh, this is a ministry to women who experience unplanned pregnancy to help them find another option, a better option, than terminating their, their, their pregnancies. Shepherd's Heart, we, we celebrate the opening of our Shepherd's Heart ministry, ministering now to 1,400 people a month coming through who need food, who need counsel, who need love and care. It's a form of offering justice. We're committed to these ministries because... We worship a God who loves and cares. We do it because that's what Jesus did. It's what he modeled for us. It's what he taught us to do as his followers. And we do it because it's hypocritical to worship a God of justice without caring about what God cares about. It's hypocritical to worship without caring about justice. It's what the ancient prophets say. And notice that God rejects the worship of, Of the unjust. That's stark in these this ancient prophecy. God utterly rejects the worship of those who are knowingly unjust. A sobering part of Isaiah's message. He says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. They don't go together. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. And when you spread out your hands, when you beg for me favors, when you beg for my protection, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. God says, I will not listen. Now we might think, well, you know, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Now that's maybe not really so much for us living now. In the New Testament, James, chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So God confronts his people in order to restore, but he confronts. He confronts worship without justice. And thirdly, today, God calls his people to repentance. He calls his people to repentance. Isaiah 1, I've read these verses already, but I read them again. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's call. This is God's call to repentance. Now, repentance is a word that maybe we don't use as much as we should anymore. It it sounds like one of those old-fashioned, churchy kind of words that just feels a little out of touch with today's culture, repentance. But it's really a great word. It just means to to turn, to turn around, to go in a new direction, to cease going one way and to go another way. In his holiness, God confronts our sin, and he must. In his mercy, God offers to forgive our sin. This he doesn't have to do. This he offers as a gift. This is what we call grace. And we respond to his grace with Repentance. We respond to his holiness, his mercy, his offer to forgive by turning, by receiving that grace and by turning back to him. Repentance. That's what God's calling for from his people. And then he makes a promise. And God's promise to the repentant is this. Isaiah 58, verses 8 and 9. Then, when you've turned back to me, after I've confronted you in your injustice and your sin and your iniquity and you've received my offer my grace, you've turned back to me. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. God is saying, when you repent, when you acknowledge your sins, specifically when you acknowledge that you have not cared for the poor, you have not been a friend to the fatherless, you have not cared for the widow, you have not set the oppressed free, when you admit and you align yourself and your worship with my justice, when you align your hearts with my heart, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Then your healing shall spring up. Your righteousness shall go before you. I was reading that this week and thinking, and I was starting to think about our reputation, the reputation of God's people in the world, the reputation of the church in North America. And I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think many, many people in our culture, right here where we live, tend to think of the church like this. Oh, you know, the church is filled with a whole bunch of people who just think they're better than everybody else, who, who hopelessly hold to old-fashioned belief systems and who really aren't much good to society. You know, they think of us like a museum, or like a country club for religious people. I think that's true. But what if, what if the church is known as the presence of, of a God who is just? What if we were known as those who make manifest in the world around us, in our local communities, the justice and mercy of a good God? What if the church not only worships a holy God, but lives out his holiness, his justice, and righteousness in the world around us? Then the prophet is saying the church, the people of God become a light. That breaks forth like the dawn. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Then the church brings a message of healing and hope to the world that makes sense to the people who are watching from the outside. Then the church becomes an instrument of righteousness in the world. He says, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You'll have protection by my glory. Then you shall call and I will answer. He will hear your prayers. He will hear our prayers. There's both a personal and a corporate application to these ancient prophecies, I think. And they're fairly obvious. The corporate response is for the church. The gospel community that is called the body of Christ in the world. Now this is not only us here at South Street, not only us that here's Chapel Street, but all those who call themselves by the name of Christ in the world. This is an application for all of us collectively. If we are going to gather in the name of Christ, if we're going to worship a God who is holy, just, and merciful, we must make sure that what we say to and about God on Sunday matches how we live and how we treat the most vulnerable among us from Monday through Saturday. That's simply what the prophet's say. Make sure your worship aligns with who God is. The personal response is, is for us as individual believers. It's for you and for me. If we are going to call ourselves by his name, if I am going to call myself by his name, if I am going to seek him in prayer, if I'm going to seek his blessing, if I'm going to rest in his Sabbath rest, I must make sure that my heart, we must make sure that our hearts are aligned with his heart. And God's heart is for justice. God's heart is for justice. Let me bow with me as I pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word, this ancient prophecy of a man named Isaiah that feels foreign to us in many ways, but still feels contemporary. So we confess that there are times when we have offered you our worship but maybe have kept our hearts far from you. Forgive us for times when we have not upheld and acknowledged your justice and your righteousness in the way you would have us. We ask that by the power of your Spirit and by Christ who calls us to follow him, you would make us instruments of your justice, your mercy, and your righteousness in the world. Thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.